our Lord Jesus Christ. Please join us now as we open up the scriptures together. Well, good morning. We are continuing in the book of Acts this morning in chapter 18. We're going to be covering the first 17 verses. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 18, and if you would stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. This is Acts 18, starting in verse 1. After these things, he departed Athens. And went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, and his wife Priscilla, who recently came from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he was staying with them, and they were working. For by trade they were tent makers, and he was reasoning with in the synagogues every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a God-fearer whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people In this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, It would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I am not to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Heavenly Father, we are... So blessed to gather this morning, we, we pray, Lord, you are blessed by the reading and the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So as we continue to look at this fascinating account of Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts, we see him in verse 1 depart Athens and go to Corinth, which lies about 40 to 50 miles west of Athens. Now, the city of Corinth is a provincial city. It's one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at that time. And unlike Athens, which only had a population of about 10,000, Corinth got as large as a quarter million people. It was not only a major port city, but it had location, location, location going for it. It was where the north-south land routes met up with the east-west sea routes. 
Surely Paul saw the importance of such a city of trade, figuring if trade could radiate out in all directions, so could the gospel. Corinth was not only a great port city of commerce, but is also a city of sports with their games only second to the, the Olympics. But the worldwide legend of Corinth was in its toxic mix of sexual immorality and false religion, much like the Baal worship that we see in the Old Testament. Corinth contained many temples and shrines to Greek gods, including the temple of Aphrodite, which was famous for its temple priestesses, or more accurately, its temple prostitutes, of which a thousand would descend on the city each nightfall to work their trade. And if Athens was known for glorifying the mind, Corinth was known for glorifying the body. Visitors could rationalize their adultery in Corinth as carrying out the necessary rituals associated with the worship of Aphrodite. So scandalous was the reputation of Corinth that even the vilest sinners in Rome would blush at what was going on down in Corinth. It truly was sin city. And to live as a Corinthian, as they would say, was to live a life of debauchery and profligate living. Then along comes our beloved Paul, who since he entered Europe, things had not gone so well. He suffered a terrible beating and jailing in Philippi. He faced civil disobedience and unrest in Thessalonica and Berea. And then we found out from last week the indifference and rejection of the gospel in Athens. Athens, the university town, the town of philosophy, the home of Aristotle and Plato, the intellectual center of the ancient world, a city where we saw last week all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. The cold, mocking philosopher kings of Athens playing their intellectual games proved to be poor soil for the gospel as we only saw a contingent that came to faith. No church was established. And that's why we don't see any epistles that say First and Second Athenians. The word of God would not take root among the pride of the great human philosophy of Athens. The Athenians were full of themselves and their grand ideas, resulting in only a few empty souls for God to pour his grace into. And the contrast here is so instructive in how God deals with fallen man. In the ditch on one side of the road is the prideful Athenians who challenge God. In the ditch on the other side of the road are the sinful Corinthians running away from God. It was the Puritan Andrew Jones who once wrote, Pride sets men in opposition against God. In other sins, men run away from God. But pride is a coming against God. Pride is the greatest sin of man. It casts the angels out of heaven. It cast Adam out of the garden. It cast King Saul off his throne. So the question for you this morning is, does your pride have a hold on you? Is your pride holding you back from the gospel as it did these Athenians? Are you harboring an indifference to the cross of Christ due to your pride? The pride of knowledge, the pride of accomplishment, the pride of status, the pride of religiosity. No one is immune to the sin of pride. We must all be on guard to the deceptive temptation in believing in our own self-importance. For if any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. But it's better to be a Corinthian running away from God than an indifferent, prideful Athenian who's coming against God. Just look at Corinth. Paul found good soil with not just a few, but many Corinthians who believed and were baptized. And providentially, a church was planted. 
The answer as to why the gospel found such little traction in Athens and found so much fruit amongst the Corinthian sinners comes from Jesus himself when he made the distinction of the prideful self-righteous and the rank sinner in Luke chapter 5. You remember after being challenged by the Pharisees for eating and drinking with the sinners and tax collectors, what does Jesus say? He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Paul later writing to these very Corinthians would tell them, for consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the things that are, which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before the Lord. So how do you see yourself this morning? Do you see yourself as wise, mighty, maybe more noble than others? Or do you see yourself as a broken sinner, running from God, running on empty, empty of yourself? If so, this is good news. For God will not pour his grace into anything other than empty hearts. And I am grateful for this stark contrast in our text between the Athenians and the Corinthians because there can be no more important question. Are you a righteous sinner running from God? Or worse, the self-righteous coming against God? For God will pursue the one, but he'll ignore the other. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I pray that this contrast gnaws at you and that it convicts you and it will not let you go until God has his way with you. So without his introduction, let's move to verses 2 and 3 in your outline. This is letter A. From the time Paul is introduced in the book of Acts, he's taken on this epic life as a Holy Spirit and dwelt father of the faith. He has one of the most dramatic conversions in Scripture. Then he becomes one of the most successful, effective teachers of Scripture, and then one of the most effective preachers of Scripture, and then one of the most effective missionaries of Scripture. Yet we cannot forget that the best of men are men at best. Paul is a self-described wretched man who wrestled with his own sins and his own disappointments. And consider how he enters Corinth here, walking all alone after leaving Athens where he found little fruit. Paul records in his first letter he wrote to these very Corinthians years later, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God, for I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fearing, in much trembling. Paul had been beaten, jailed, mocked. He'd been chased out of town after town. And then he ends up all alone in Corinth. From the externals, he must have thought, Man, it can't get any worse than this because he's bringing the spiritual truth of God to the most fleshly pagan city in the Roman Empire. Surely he's thinking, can anything good come from Corinth? He's weary. He's discouraged. If he could have just gotten his hands on Joel Osteen's your best life now. I mean, can you picture Paul walking into Corinth, smiling like Joel Osteen? Blinking incessantly. Never trust anybody that blinks that much. <laughs> Paul needed the God of encouragement now more than ever. And thankfully, God is concerned with the encouragement of his own. And God will bring companionship, apostleship, and fellowship to Paul, as we're going to see in these verses. Let's first look at how God encourages Paul with new friends. In verses 2 and 3, it reads, He found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, having recently come down from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, 
he stayed with them, and they worked together, for they were tent makers. So this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who would later start a home church, were divinely sent to co-labor with Paul, making tents and sharing the gospel at the perfect time in his ministry, when Paul needed companions. He needed brothers and sisters in Christ, and these two would, be, would prove to be near and dear to Paul's heart. They'd be mentioned throughout Scripture, with Priscilla many times being referred to as Prisca. In Acts 18, it refers to when Paul took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with them were Priscilla and Aquila. In Romans, Paul recorded, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians, Paul stated, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. In 2 Timothy, Paul records, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the house of Onesiphorus. From verse 2, we can see how God divinely used Claudius's, the emperor Claudius's persecution of the Jews to, in Rome to not only spread the gospel out of Rome into Europe, but also by sending this dear couple out of Italy down to Greece. Claudius led this outbreak of anti-Semitism in Rome in A.D. 49, which led to the expelling of 20,000 Jews from Rome. And since Christianity was seen as an offshoot of Judaism, they expelled all the Christians out along with them. History amazingly records what was the flashpoint that instigated the enacting of this decree by Claudius. And it came by the way of a Roman historian 50 years after the event by Suetonius. Suetonius wrote, Jews were in a state of constant tumult. That means they were rioting at the instigation of one Crestus. Did you catch that? Crestus? Crestus and Christus in Latin would have similar pronunciations. So we can presume that some of these Jews were followers of Christ. They were Christians, and they had stirred up the Jewish community in the synagogues of Rome by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Christus. He was the Christus. So it seems Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians before they reached Corinth, which explains why there's no mention of them coming to faith. And there's no mention of them being baptized. Verse 3 states, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together, for they were tent makers by trade. So Aquila and Priscilla, with them, Paul's been blessed not only with dear friends, but dear friends he would work with and stay with. You know, normally when Paul rolled into a new town, he would check out those two places where he knew he was going to be spending the bulk of his time. And that would be in the local synagogue and the local jail. But here in Corinth, by God's provision, he would work all week supporting himself and then preach in the synagogue each Sabbath and all along the way enjoy the company of his new friends in Christ. So next we're going to look at how God prioritizes the gospel preaching. This is a letter B in your outline. And this is verses 4 and 5. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. God had the right man in the right place at the right time with the euangelion, the good news, reasoning in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, devoting himself completely to the word, testifying that Jesus was the Christ. And as he did in city after city, Paul would make a beeline for the local synagogue, and then he would leverage his credentials as a learned rabbi. And as soon as those local leaders gave him the smallest opening to, to preach, he would drive a truck through it with the preaching of the gospel. The word reasoning in verse 4 indicates that Paul was engaged in an interchange of speech, in this case concerning the Old Testament scriptures. But it wasn't just the Jews he was after. 
We also see the inclusion of the Greeks, the Gentiles, which would indicate that they were attracted, just as the Jews were, to the monotheism and the moralism of Judaism. We've seen this in other cities like Antioch and Pisidia. Many of these vile pagan cities, many people were drawn to this moralism. The phrase trying to persuade means this wasn't a professorial lecture, but rather an urgent call of a dying man to dying men. He would build an airtight case from their own scripture, the Old Testament, and then he would ask for the verdict. The hearers didn't need a homily. They didn't need stories about himself or a topical message or a cute illustration or 10 ways to grow your synagogue. What they needed to hear was that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah who died for sinners and after three days rose to life as witnessed by hundreds and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christ crucified was the central message of his preaching. And a preacher will know if he's done this correctly. As Matt mentioned a couple weeks ago, when he quoted Steve Lawson, if the hearers leave mad, glad, or sad, and as we will soon see, mad will be the overwhelming reaction from these Jewish Corinthians. But back to verse 5, we see more encouragement that God has sent Paul, more companions. And there's one thing better than new friends in Priscilla and Aquila, it's old friends in Silas and Timothy who arrived not only with good news of the faith and love of the brethren up in Thessalonica, but they also brought a love gift, which would free Paul up financially to begin a full-time preaching ministry. Later, writing to these Corinthians, Paul records, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brothers came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need in everything I kept and will keep myself from being a burden to you. Now, verse 5 reflects that in our text. It reads, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying, bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the ESV is a little bit weak here, stating Paul was occupied with the word. I do like the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, which says Paul was devoting himself completely to the word. And it was this devoting completely to the definite article logos, the logos, the word. In the context here, it's the word of the cross, the word of the gospel. Paul knew the souls of men and women weighed in the balance between eternal life and eternal condemnation. So we see that this verse continues with Paul solemnly bearing witness. He was as serious as a heart attack because his heart ached for the unsaved that do not know that Jesus is Lord. And this anguish was especially true concerning his own kinsmen. In Romans 9, it opens with, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And that leads us to Paul's reaction. Paul received from this pre- the preaching of the gospel, and this is letter C in your outline, God prevents the gospel accept- acceptance. And this is verse 6. So you remember the mad, glad, and sad. Well, Paul's br- preaching brings the mad and sends shockwaves through the synagogue. It reads, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. They resisted and blasphemed Christ and his sacrifice, just as prophesied in Isaiah 53, which read, He was despised and forsaken of man. The reason for the rejection was also prophesied by Isaiah and recited by Paul in Romans when he said, What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but the chosen, the elect, obtained it, and the rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. 
Paul's response to their response is equally charged as he shakes out his garments and he says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. The shaking out of the garments and the familiar turning to the Gentiles reminds us of his response to Antioch Pisidia from Acts 13. You remember when Paul and Barnabas stated, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. When Paul and Barnabas were then driven out of town, it records a few verses later, but having shaken off the dust of their feet against them, they went to Iconium. So both to the Jews in Antioch, Pisidia, and to the Jews in Corinth, Paul speaks of this transition from Judaism to the Gentiles, which is a major theme in the book of Acts. And in both cities, Paul speaks of a separation and a condemnation of the nation of Israel for their rejection. Remember the shaking off the dust of the shoes or the shaking off of the dust of the garments was symbolic of removing the defilement. And this was normally associated with a Jew that would walk through the territory of the Gentiles where they'd shake that off. But Paul flips that on these Jews that reject the Messiah. And here he even gives a stronger response than at Antioch Pisidia. Paul is seen not only shaking the dust out of his garments, but stating your blood be on your own head. You are responsible for this. Echoing the same awesome sense of responsibility and rejection that all of Israel's prophets faced from an obstinate and stiff-necked people. But remember, it was God who gave them eyes to see not, and it was God that gave them ears to hear not. Thus it is God himself who prevents the gospel acceptance by the Jews. And this leads us a letter D in your outline. God provides the gospel fruit. This is verses 7 and 8. It reads, and then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a God-fearer whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So emblematic is this scene that we see Paul ejected from the symbol of Israel, the local synagogue, and he goes where? He goes to a private house next door of a Gentile where he's received. Paul and his evangelism is literally going to the Gentiles right next door. Jesus said, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Just think of it side by side. In one house, the Jews met for worship and study of the scripture. In the next house, Christians met for worship and study in the scripture. In one house, as Isaiah prophesied, they looked forward to a time when a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Then it will be in that day that the nations, the Gentiles, will seek the root of Jesse. In the other house, that very prophecy was being fulfilled. The good fruit of verses 7 and 8 included an exemplary Jew, an exemplary Gentile coming to faith in the midst of congregational Jewish rejection. But Yahweh said, So will my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And such is the power of the word of the Lord to bring the good fruit that pleases the Lord. Now, interestingly, from 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul himself baptizes Crispus. In 1 Corinthians, it reads, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Gaius, many commentators believe, is in fact Titius Justice, although the connection isn't altogether clear. But one thing we have to recognize is the trend. As Christ builds his church in the book of Acts, we see respected leaders believing followed by many in their household. Cornelius and his household in Acts 10. Lydia and her household in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer and his household also in Acts 16. And now Crispus and all his household. And it didn't end there. 
It reads, and then many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Paul was run out of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth only to see a Gentile, a Jew, and all his household, and now even many of the Corinthians come to faith and be baptized. And please don't miss the method of grace that God uses here at the end of verse 8. First, the gospel was preached. Second, many who heard believed. And third, those who believed were baptized. According to the New Testament pattern, baptism is for believers only. And we should notice that baptism was done immediately after coming to faith. I mean, why wait to make a public declaration of an inner transformation? If you're a believer and have not been baptized, please consider the importance that Scripture has placed on baptism for believers. We are commanded to be baptized. Please don't be disobedient to that command. Now we come to letter E in your outline. God projects the gospel advancement. This is 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11. He said, The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. This is the third of six visions Paul receives from the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts. The first was for salvation. You remember on the road to Damascus? The other five are for encouragement and for instruction. We have in this vision four encouragements from the Lord. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you in order to harm you. The Lord starts with, do not be afraid, confirming that Paul was, in fact, afraid. And we've seen this in 1 Corinthians already. It's, it read, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Since his conversion on the road to Damascus, this resilient missionary, Paul, who's already been through more verbal and physical altercations and confrontations than any of us will face in a lifetime. And he's not even done yet. He's not being promised an end to the persecution. Do you see that? But rather the comfort to get through that persecution, to get through those trials. Thankfully, we serve a comforting God who knows and not only knows, but he controls our trials and our temptations. First Corinthians reads, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will, with the temptation will provide you a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Yahweh gave Joshua similar encouragement. He said, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. In the second, Paul is encouraged to go on speaking and not be silent. Notice the method of evangelism wasn't being changed due to his persecution or the fear that he faced. But rather, the Lord tells him to keep on preaching. Just as Paul would later tell Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. In the third encouragement, Paul was told, just as Joshua was told, God was with him. He told Joshua, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And this is virtually a repetition of what the Lord said to the disciples of the Great Commission. He said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And beloved, this is one of the most precious certainties about heaven. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? For eternity. The fourth encouragement was, no one will lay a hand on you to harm you. God here projects the gospel advancement by protecting the gospel advancement. From Romans, Paul tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? So the gospel went forth from Paul. The message was, go preach. You are safe. I am with you. Now, this was a promise for Corinth that would yield much gospel advancement. Verse 11 records, he stayed there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, before we move on, we do have to deal with the end of verse 10, which is literally one of those verses, one of those loaded verses that just stops you in your tracks. It reads, for I have many people 
in this city. And just like the special people that God had appointed to eternal life, even before they believed, you remember from back in Acts 13, remember it read, and when the Gentiles heard this, heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life believed, so also this verse in Acts 18 references a similar chosen people who also had a destiny that had been prearranged. Because Jesus refers to him having many people in the present tense. He does not say, I have many people that will become my people, but rather he already has them. And they're already his possession. In John 6, Jesus explains how this happened, how these people became the possession of Christ. It reads, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Do you see the two actions there? First, the Father gives a people to the Son that the Son possesses. And then the second action is, those that the Son possesses will come to the Son. Two separate, separate actions. And you can perfectly place one ver- our verse, for I have many people in the city, right between those two verses, those two actions. So if we do a verse jam here, you guys have heard of a sermon jam. If we do a verse jam here, it sounds like this. All that the Father gives me, for I have many people in this city, will come to me. They are a people that already belong to the Son. That's the point. Prior, because the Father gave them to the Son. And they will come to the Son when they hear the word preached by Paul over the next year and a half. This nullifies the idea that Jesus looked down through the corridors of time to see just how many of these people would decide their own eternal destiny, which is called the doctrine of simple foreknowledge. Saying, one day they will be my people, that I will call my own. Once they make their decision, they're not my people now, but they will be if they decide correctly. It's not saying that. Although that's the normal way people look at this verse, that's not what's being said here. This is present tense. Jesus already has many people in this city. They haven't heard the gospel yet. Because the Father, God the Father before the world was, chose a people for himself and gave them to the Son. So Jesus in this very vision is encouraging Paul. I have them. They're here in Corinth. So go preach, go teach. They will hear the voice of the shepherd. He's encouraging Paul. And this is in perfect accord with not only what Jesus said in John 10, but what Jesus said in John 8. He said, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Jesus is looking at people right in the eye, and he is saying, You do not belong to me, because the Father did not give you to me. That is the reason you are not believing. That is the reason you are not hearing what I am saying. Well, you say, that sounds kind of harsh. It does sound kind of harsh if you are used to hearing a man-centered gospel where man is the active agent in salvation. But the man-centered gospel is foreign to the pages of Scripture. For we see God as the sovereign in all things. Proverbs 19 records, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. Or as Yahweh challenged Job, listen how he challenges Job. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? It's as if Yahweh is saying, I don't remember you being at that eternal meeting in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't remember you being there, Job. A sovereign God should comfort us. It should not challenge us. Jesus is telling Paul the sovereignty of God is an encouragement to him. He's saying to Paul, your preaching will yield much fruit because Yahweh has sovereignly ordained a people that have already been given to Christ. Yet today, people do not like this sovereignty because a God that is sovereign in all things 
threatens their own precious sovereignty. Ironically, God's sovereignty, which has become a source of contention in our day, was a source of joy and peace to Paul as he contemplated whether to stay in Corinth or to leave Corinth. In John 10, Jesus tells a group of people who are not believing in him straight up why they don't believe. This is so politically incorrect, too, in big evangelicalism. He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The contrast is in the next verse. My sheep, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. His sheep are particular people that belong to Christ. They belong to the shepherd and that's why they hear the voice and his voice and follow him. This verse refers to his sheep, a special people, a particular people, an elect people, a chosen people. It's actually a called out people, which is where we get the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word for church. Ecclesia means a called out people. It's where we get our word for exit sign, called out ecclesia. And the gospel, no matter the cost, Paul would, would take this gospel because he knew there was an elect people out there. And no matter what the cost was to Paul, he would take this message to all people. And he wrote this years later to Timothy where he said, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of all people. No, it says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Paul understood there was an elect people and he would dedicate the rest of his life to reaching those people with the gospel. Another support for this being an elect people is revealed in the Greek word used for the word people. The Greek word is laos. For people, it's not just a bunch of random, individual, faceless, unknown people. That would be inconsistent with the interpretation that Scripture itself puts on the word laos. Laos refers to a people or as a group, a crowd, a nation, not as individuals and persons. We see this in Deuteronomy 7, where Yahweh designated the nation of Israel as my people, mine elect, right? In, in Deuteronomy 7, it reads, Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Yahweh loved them, he chose them, he knew them. Above all nations. Well, that's not fair. He loved them, he chose them, he knew them above all nations. And here in Acts 18, the Lord is telling Paul that he has chosen a people that he loves, he has chosen, and he knows them in Corinth. And they are to form his people in the same sense that Israel was his people. The only difference here, the major difference, is with this new people, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, that Jesus Christ was building as it would now include the Gentiles. So Paul would carry the message to all men with God as the active agent calling out his people to new life by granting them the faith to believe. And it's critical to realize this. Please don't miss it. That God is not acting as a passive agent, acting in response to man's decision. That's not what's happening. But rather, God always acts as the active agent in all things. A.W. Pink captured this so well. He said, God did not elect any sinner because he foresaw that they would believe for the simple and sufficient reason that no sinner ever believes until God gives him faith, just as no man sees until God gives him sight. The implication for Paul, stay here, continue to preach and teach as my chosen instrument, for I have many people in this city that I possess and will come to you through your preaching. We have seen that this pass, what this passage does say. But let's look at what this passage doesn't say. It doesn't say, Paul, go on, move, move on, leave Corinth, because I have many people in this city. Some people think that if God elects a certain people of salvation, there's no need to preach and teach the gospel. But that is a dangerous teaching. 
for no one knows who are his people but God alone. So we preach the gospel to all souls. Paul understood this, that God would use the means of his preaching to all men in order to summon his sheep to himself. We must understand that God ordains not only the ends of salvation, but he also ordains the means of salvation. The ends are the elect coming to faith, right? The means is the proclamation of the gospel. God ordains both, the ends and the means. Romans 9 and Romans 10. Romans 9 says God has an elect people chosen for himself. Romans 10 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? So Jesus tells Paul to go on preaching, for evangelism is really a rounding up of the sheep through the proclamation of the word. And his sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. That leads us to the last letter in your outline, letter F. God protects the gospel message. This is verses 12 through 17. But while Gallio was pro-counsel of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I'm not willing to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they took hold of Sassan, he's the leader of the synagogue, and began to beat him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. You guys remember those two houses of worship right next door to each other? One a synagogue, the other of converted believers. Well, the Holy Spirit created unity amongst the believers to be of one accord in one house, while the other house, the evil one, created unity among the non-believers to be of one accord against Christ through his instrument, Paul. And bringing him before this raised platform called the Bema Seat, which is seven and a half feet tall, on which sat the Roman proconsul. This was the governor of the whole region. And by the way, Gallio, there's reams of information about him, which really speaks highly of Luke's meticulous detail and the accuracy that he has in a, as an historian. But the charge laid at Paul's feet was that he persuaded men to worship God contrary to the law. Yet it's not Jewish law. It's Roman law because they're trying to convict him of a crime in a Roman court. And specifically, that Paul's brand of religion was unapproved or illegal in Rome. But here's the problem they ran into. Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. And, it was, and Judaism was approved religion. It was a permitted religion. So Gallio's legal response to these charges is predictable. The short answer he gave was, your charges have no legal standing. There's no wrongdoing or vicious crime here, but rather this is an interfaith argument. So Paul doesn't even need to make a case because Gallio threw the case out of court before it even started. Then he threw the Jews out. Then watching the, the watching public got a hold of Sosthenes and they beat him up in front of the, the uh, Bema seat right there in public with Gallio sitting unfazed by the violence, showing no concern whatsoever. Sosthenes, interesting guy, he's one of the few people in the book of Acts on the business end of a public beating, not named Paul. And he may be the very same Sosthenes who Paul addresses in his first letter written back to the Corinthians, stating, this is chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother. How sweet is that? So Sosthenes likely became a believer, which was evidence of the effectiveness of the evangelism of Paul in Corinth. But what is clear in this episode, with Paul's exoneration before the governor of Achaia, the proconsul, was that God was protecting the gospel message to go forth in Corinth for the next year and a half. We've seen how God provides, God prioritizes, God prevents, he projects, and he protects so the big takeaway in Paul's evangelism in Corinth 
is that God is not a passive God in salvation, but rather he is an active God because he has his people, he has his sheep, he has his flock, and he made sure that his gospel and his gospel preacher would be unabated in presenting the gospel message. And remember, this was accomplished in the most fleshly, pagan, sinful city in the Roman Empire. This was not Athens, the erudite, intellectual, prideful Athens. That's not where we see the floodgates open to the gospel and see, as a result, believers called out of this sin-soaked world into the light, into new life in Christ. It didn't happen in Athens. It happened in Corinth. So the question is this morning, have you made that transformation out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Are you truly saved? Or are you relying on your own righteousness to be your golden ticket to heaven? It really comes down to how you see yourself, your true standing before a holy and righteous God. Do you see that your soul is not well? That you are a sinner and great in need of the great physician? If you're not a believer, that's how God sees you, as a vile sinner, just like those Corinthians, running away from him. And if that's you this morning, I have good news. Just as Paul had good news for those in Corinth. Remember Luke 5 when Jesus said, It is not those who are well that need a physician. Did that sound like Athens? It is not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I pray there's none among us that have self-righteous hearts, that think that they are good, that think that they are well. Why? Because that person would respond the same way those Athenians did. They'd say, no thanks, I'm good. I pray that we all identify with these Corinthian sinners who came to faith, who knew they were not good, who knew that they were not well, who knew that their sin was exceedingly sinful, and they recognized their need for the great physician, Jesus Christ. The only one who could wipe away their sin by his own shed blood on the cross and could raise them to new life by his resurrection. If you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever, and you identify with those sinners that came to Christ in Corinth, now is the time to stop your resistance. Now is the time to humble yourself, pray, and seek his face. And just know that every one of us in here that has already been born again, we are praying and hoping that in your humility, you will answer his divine calling. You'll hear the voice of the good shepherd and you will come to Christ. So let's pray as Peter comes up with the team and uh, finishes up with one last song. Heavenly Father, we are so glad to be able to gather this morning. We're so thankful for your text, the clarity of your text. Thankful for your mercy and your grace. If it weren't for your mercy and grace, we wouldn't be here today. And we know that the echo of your grace is gratitude. And we bring your gra- this gratitude to you this morning, Lord. And we pray that if there are any here that do not know you, as they graze on the world, we pray that they would hear your voice and their head would pop up as they hear the voice of the good shepherd and that they would come and follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.